Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey, Adapters. In this week's fantastic episode, I have on Rich Sorkin, co-founder and CEO of Jupiter Intel, a Silicon Valley startup focusing on climate risk modeling. I haven't had many private businesses on the podcast, but I want to start highlighting the emerging adaptation business sector. Rich has a lot of interesting and important things to say on the subject. Also, please stick around. I have a bonus conversation with Claire Weiner, a teenager from the Baltimore region who is leading efforts to recruit teens to participate in the Zero Hour Climate March in July. It's a short conversation with Claire, but she has an amazing story and you will be inspired by the younger generation really stepping it up on climate change. All right, your favorite part of the episode is housekeeping. All right, this is really cool. You can now listen to America Adapts on TV. Climate Monitor is a new channel dedicated to all things climate change. It's available on Roku and Amazon Fire. It's one of those apps that you download to your TV. So just whatever, how you get Roku or Amazon Fire, just search for climate, climate change, or climate monitor, and it'll show up. I know my podcast is audio, but plenty of people listen to music on their TV. Why not a podcast? It also includes some imagery that sort of cycles through as you're listening each episode. All right, check it out. And the station has all sorts of other climate content, like material from years of living dangerously, to climate meetings, to conferences. Thanks, Mitchell, for the invite to contribute material to Climate Monitor. Okay, I've mentioned this before, but if you have Alexa, you can now listen to the podcast on Alexa. In my show notes, there is a video that shows you how to do this. All right, upcoming episodes. It's going to be a packed summer of America Daps. Coming soon, I have climate communication expert Suzanne Moser, along with folks from the Kresge Foundation. I'm also doing a three-part flood-themed series with World Wildlife Fund. Also, Dr. Natasha DeJarnett from the American Public Health Association. She came on and we talked about climate change and public health. I have two Australia-themed episodes coming soon, and I'm also getting an Olympic snowboarding medalist on the podcast to talk about an organization she's helping protect our winters, which is obviously talking about how climate change is impacting the winter games. Very cool. I got my work cut out for me this summer. All right, I'm about to do a keynote presentation for the Potomac chapter of the American Society of Landscape Architects. I am looking forward to that. Thank you for the invite. And that Landscape Architect episode that I did last fall has been one of my most popular ever. And for you DC adapters, I'm doing a live recording with previous guest Elizabeth Rush, the author of Rising. And we're doing this at Solid State Books on June 14th from 7 to 8 p.m. There's more details in the show notes. This will be a lot of fun. Come on out. You guys can ask her questions. I'll be asking her questions, and it's going to be sort of a laid-back opportunity to participate in my podcast. Just a reminder, and I'm going to say this slowly, America Adapts is a charitable organization. This is a full-time gig, and we need your support. Please consider giving a tax-deductible donation. You can find links to the We Did It donate page in the show notes. Also, if you're interested in a specific podcast, in sponsoring specific podcast, or having me speak at a public or corporate event, you'll really enjoy it. I share stories from the podcast, my own experiences in adaptation, and I include plenty of humor in these talks. You can contact me via the website, americadapts.org. Okay, let's get started with Rich and Jupiter Intel. And don't forget to stick around for my short conversation with Claire Weiner talking about the Zero Hour Youth Climate March. Hey, welcome back, Adapters. On today's episode, I am very excited to be hosting Rich Sorkin, CEO and co-founder of Jupiter Intel. Welcome to the podcast, Rich. Uh, thanks very much, Doug. It's a pleasure to be here. First off, what is Jupiter Intel? Uh, sure. So Jupiter Intelligence, or as we refer to it, just simply Jupiter, predicts the risk from weather and climate change at an individual property level. We have services that are as short-term oriented as one hour that are used for operational planning, things like emergency management and whether to close a runway or close a store, all the way out to uh, 50 years. And those services are used for things like deciding where and how to build. Okay. Just besides the obvious, is there any sort of symbolism to the name why you chose Jupiter? So Jupiter is the Greek god of weather. And the co-founders of the company had a prior company about a decade ago that was doing 
short-term weather-related services that was uh, named Zeus. So Jupiter is the new and improved version of Zeus, the uh, Greek god of weather. Okay, great. All right. And so where are you based out of? Uh, so headquarters are in Silicon Valley, and we currently have offices in New York City and Boulder, Colorado. And I would expect over the next six to 12 months, we'll be opening offices in the minimum of Miami and uh, Europe. All right. And so how long have you guys been in business? Uh, so first funding of the company was April of 2017. Uh, so we recently celebrated our one-year anniversary as a company. All right. I kind of want to get into this a little bit later, but you, you've generated quite a bit of media. You know, that's just, I'm sure that's great for you guys. But has it, what's the situation? In, uh, and I sort of want to talk about how you've gotten some of this your funding. But for your clients at this stage, are you kind of outreaching to them or clients interested in sort of the product that you have? Because it's sort of kind of unique how you've sort of gotten some exposure with the media. Are, are they coming to you? Uh, sure. A uh, great question. And it really depends on the time frame we're talking about. So from April of last year to uh, February of this year, uh, we were in uh, what is commonly referred to in Silicon Valley as stealth mode, which is essentially we we're trying to keep what we were doing as much of a secret as possible for a variety of reasons. And we had a targeted list of a couple hundred public and private sector entities that we directly reached out to. <clears throat> Some were very interested. Not everyone was. Uh, occasionally, people would say, well, we don't really think climate change is a real issue. And uh, obviously, we crossed them off our list for now. And then in February, we had the first media coverage in The Washington Post, uh, followed by The New York Times in March. And ever since then, we've had ever-increasing percentage of our customer discussions that are as a result of um, inbound uh, inquiries. So right now, it's still probably about two-thirds, one-third. Two-thirds are the product of relationships that we began building a year ago, and one-third are inbound. But even that you know, increase, that's when you go from two-thirds to and add another third, that's a 50% increase. So we've been hiring people as fast as we can to uh, manage some of those uh, conversations and uh, emerging relationships. And I would expect, if you ask me that question, three months from now, you know, to be closer to 50-50 and just continue to grow in terms of the number of uh, inquiries that we're getting as a result of inbound inquiries. My background is in adaptation policy. I've been doing it for about 15 years, and <laughs> it hasn't been a very sexy field. And it, your company, it, it's a curious thing. You know, you refer to in some of these articles as a you know, Silicon Valley startup. And wh why are you coming into the field of adaptation? I mean, you, I guess you personally as a co-founder, what were you seeing? What, why did it all of a sudden that you think that this was a market and this was a field that, you know, Silicon Valley was going to attempt to work in? Sure. So I've been working in the environmental space as a component of things I've done for uh, probably a decade at this point. And so I had a bit of a unique vantage point on some of the issues relative to, you know, a lot of folks that are focused on emerging technology here in Silicon Valley. And we had a pretty deep background in um, atmospheric science uh, just from prior work that my co-founders and I have done. Uh, and, you know, in many cases together in prior companies. And, you know, we kind of looked at what was going on in the world and said that around climate change, maybe 90 to 98% of the dialogue is focused on uh, greenhouse gas policy and the overall arc of how the climate is changing and the debate about if it's changing and at what rate and what's the impact and what should the policy responses be. And the question of sea level actually has risen and storms actually have intensified and losses related to flooding and drought and extreme heat events, both from an economic perspective as well as from a safety perspective, human health and safety perspective, have been steadily increasing. That aspect of it was really pretty underserved. And so we thought, you know, it might be a little bit early, but that was going to be an area that just understanding those practical real world consequences of the fact that the 
atmosphere has already changed and the risks have already increased and are continuing to increase that understanding that was you know fertile ground and even if we were a little early in that area there's huge advantages to being an early early mover if you're sufficiently well capitalized to last last that that period where we're educating the market and so you know that was kind of the driving insight for what we're doing and for me personally, I like to work on things that are, you know, simultaneously big, complicated problems from a technical and business perspective, um, have tremendous social impact and also large economic stakes. So, you know, there was no question that this fit that bill in terms of thinking about what I personally was going to do next. I don't suppose you've crossed paths in California with the Peter Kariva at UCLA, that name ring a bell? Yeah, I mean, we have a pretty robust dialogue with um, UCLA. It's not as far along as um, our relationships, which are now consummated with Columbia University in New York and uh, USC in uh, Southern California. But there's some fabulous work being done in, at UCLA that we're already pretty far along and figuring out how to collaborate on. The reason I bring it up is uh, I did this California DAP series, this three-part podcast where I went out there, and Peter Kareve and UCLA sponsored it. But one of the conversations I had with him is that he was trying to make a point that, at least up until now, why so much attention has been on the mitigation side of climate change is that that's where all the money's being made. But on adaptation, there's just not much money to be made, and so there hasn't been that attention. But I guess what you're you're doing and you're, I guess, demonstrating is that that's shifting. We and our investors believe that this is a – very important and big market opportunity that it's in its early stages. And I guess, you know, time will tell over the course of the next few years whether that was a, a good bet. I can say the early signs are extraordinarily encouraging from a business building perspective. But, uh, you know, we have a long way to go before we're as uh, as big as um, a major other major technology companies. Just for my listeners, I've done a quite a bit of homework on, on what you're doing, but could you just briefly walk through, and I know you described a little bit, but let's say a specific client, and you don't even have to mention the name, but let's say it's a city, but you're dealing with flooding. What exactly are you doing for them? And you know, I, I guess maybe get a little bit into the, the fine scale uh, modeling that you're doing for them. What literally are you doing as the service? Sure. So there's kind of two components to that question. The first is, what's the service? And then the second is, how are we delivering it? Um, so I'll take those one at a time. Uh, first, in terms of the service and the customers, um, we have three major sectors that we work in, asset owners, financial services, and the public sector. And in each one of those sectors, we have some flagship early customers that are sub-segments of the larger sector, if you will. So in among asset owners, ultimately, that includes things like real estate, uh, ports, airports, critical infrastructure, power, refineries, roads, essentially anything that you can physically touch, including, by the way, hotels. And our first customers in the asset sector are in real estate. And I'll come back to that in a moment. Uh, in financial services, uh, that's a pretty broad spectrum of entities, including insurance and all the sectors of insurance, hedge funds that are investors, asset owners in general, uh, everything from big sovereign wealth funds that have a trillion dollars of assets of capital to invest to, to um, you know, smaller investor entities and even uh, bond rating agencies like Moody's and S&P. And then in the public sector, you know, that's essentially big cities, could be small cities, but cities in general, starting with big cities, uh, states and uh, national governments and various different parts of national governments. And in the public sector, we're starting uh, with large metropolitan areas. And I'll give you two very specific examples in real estate. And this is something the New York Times actually talked about um, in their in their article. So a lot of this is kind of out there um, already, but uh, we're working. Uh, one of our customers is a company called CBEC, which has about a billion dollars of industrial real estate in Los Angeles, Houston, South Florida, Charleston and around the port of New York, ports of New York and New Jersey. And they're expanding in Charleston. They're buying land and building on that land. And they know that Charleston floods and they'd like to buy land that is less flood prone than other land. And there's actually no good information source for that. The FEMA information is really quite 
limited and in many cases wrong. And the insurance information is based on the risk in the next 12 months and not 20, 30 years in the future. And so they're essentially starting from scratch and they turn to us uh, like many other large real estate entities and said, you know, help us understand the risks associated with various different property that we might buy and build on. Um, in other cases, uh, we're working with real estate developer owners that already own property and want to understand kind of what risk exposure they have in each different asset in their portfolio. On the other end of the spectrum, in the public sector, public sector has to make decisions around zoning and building codes and, excuse me, uh, zoning and building codes and investments in infrastructure related to drainage. And that's an ongoing process. And that's hundreds of millions of dollars a year that are getting spent on infrastructure every year in every big city in the country and even more after events like Hurricane Sandy and Hurricane Harvey and Hurricane Irma when there's a influx of federal funding. And they want to have the best information possible around the understanding these risks so that they can make good decisions to um, support the health, safety and economic well-being of their of their cities. Okay, and so in that New York Times article, I'm just curious what your reaction to the, the overall article was, because just you had mentioned Zebek was in, interested in participating in this pilot project. But one of the lines from the article is, although Jupiter's forecasting skill remains unproven, I mean, is, that must sort of influence what you think is like potential clients if that's, well, it remains unproven. I mean, would you say that's an inaccurate way to describe what you're doing? Yeah, I look at this a little bit differently. The New York Times wrote an article about what we're doing and why it's important when we were 10 months old and had an, and had just launched a service. Um, and any smart customer is going to know it's a brand new service and it's not yet proven. And the customers that are working with us, or at least back in February were working with us, were ones that said, you know, we see the promise in what you're doing and it's strategically important to us. We think we can get pretty significant economic, strategic, and positioning advantages uh, from working with a company like Jupiter. And so, you know, we'll do a pilot and we'll see how it goes. And if it goes well, then we'll do more. And to expect anything more than that in a 10-month-old company, I think, would be, you know, quite arrogant. You know, we thought the, that comment in the Times article, and, you know, that was three months ago, so roughly 25% of the company's history at this point was a was you know a fair comment at the time since then you know we've deployed our pilots they're up and running customers have experience with them a number of the largest financial services companies in the world are doing confidential evaluations of the predictive accuracy of what we're doing and Rome wasn't built in a day and you know we have a step-by-step process in building the company we're quite confident that we have the most accurate predictions available in the marketplace for what we're doing. And anyone that takes a close look at what we're, what we're doing, we'll, we'll see that for themselves. But, um, you know, we have to prove what we're doing to our customers and the marketplace in, in general. We don't get that for free. We have to, we have to earn it. I mean, I think your company is a sign that the field of adaptation is maturing and I think it's still early days. And yet I don't think a lot of people understand what it means to just deal with the risk. I know that companies are trying to think about this and I guess I'm trying to visualize too, that let's say a client, would you help them ultimately decide to like even locate a, a facility? And could you tell them that the, the risk of floods, are you talking percentages? Are you saying that this is likely to get flooded? Does it come down to that sort of decision-making that a, a company would have access to when they're working with you? Sure. Uh, so that's a great question. There's sort of two pieces to the question. One is, how do we communicate the risk and in what form? And then the second is, what role do we play in the overall adaptation value chain? Um, so let me take those two separately. With regard to how we communicate the risk, um, it really depends on the customer. And I'll give you kind of two ends of the spectrum. So one end of the spectrum is a customer that says, look, we're, you know, we're buying real estate and there are a lot of different factors that go into the site selection decision. One is proximity to uh, transportation infrastructure. Another is proximity to the tenants and where they want to be. And, you know, yet another is 
the risk of flooding. You know, we understand that the risk of flooding is only one factor. And quite frankly, you know, it may make economic sense for someone to say, look, the driver, the economic drivers for this decision are so compelling that we're going to tolerate a higher risk. We'll just offset that risk by making greater adaptation investments in, you know, the design of the building or seawalls or drainage infrastructure than we might otherwise have done. And that's, you know, and that's their their decision. They're the closest to their business on that. Um, and so, you know, in that particular case, they might just say, tell us based on criteria we've given you um, whether something is high risk, medium risk or low risk, and then we'll take it from here. Uh, and if it's high risk and we decide that we're going to buy that property, we might come back and, you know, interrogate it more deeply or have you work with our architecture, engineering and construction firm to, you know, as an input into the design parameters, given that we know that it's high risk. Um, at the other end of the spectrum, if it's an insurance company, you know, they literally want to understand every single nuance of every single component of our modeling chain and how we are calculating uncertainty and error bands and um, the distribution of risk and, you know, kind of everything that goes into it because they're essentially, their economics are fundamentally based on that risk calculation. It's not an input into their, the totality of their business. It is their business. And, you know, in the case of a large reinsurance company, you know, ultimately over time, we're talking about a trillion dollars of assets that are exposed to these risks. And so, you know, we have we have very different types of customer engagement around these issues, depending on whether what we're doing is one of several inputs or the input for the customer's business, and then also their risk tolerance. Uh, so some people say, you know, you can't predict the climate 50 years out. Why try? And certainly the level of uncertainty 50 years out is much greater than 10 years out. And then the question is, well, does Jupiter's customer have to make a 50-year time horizon decision regardless of whether there's, you know, regardless of the level of uncertainty associated with that decision? If you're an insurance company and you have a one-year time horizon, you don't really need to know. If you're a property company and you have a 30-year-old company, you might not really care so much about 50 years. But if you're designing an airport infrastructure improvement or you're creating uh, zoning decisions and building codes, uh, 50 years actually out is actually quite material in terms of the time horizon for those issues. And, you know, even if there's a large amount of uncertainty, understanding what the range of possible outcomes is as best you can and understanding how much uncertainty is associated with that range of outcomes is critically important. So, you know, we do different things with different different customers. So we predict risk related to weather and climate change. And I think, as I shared with you at the, at the outset, flooding is the first of the perils that we're addressing. We also um, are in pilot on our extreme heat service, and we'll have a wildfire service launching in California in roughly the next six to nine months. And we'll address drought and water security and resource extraction and transportation lanes and supply chain disruption and national security related applications all over time. Obviously, we can't do all of that in the first uh, 12 months of the company. But within that context, we essentially are building a, a cloud-based reusable modeling infrastructure. So the same kinds of innovations that have seen tens of billions of dollars of investment in cloud infrastructure and machine learning at places like Google and Microsoft and Facebook, we're leveraging that technology infrastructure. Um, and similarly, the federal government and national governments worldwide have invested tens, if not hundreds of billions of dollars in modeling and observational systems like the GOES uh, satellite infrastructure or the USGS title 
um, monitoring so tidal and river monitoring system where the um, sensors actually literally sit in the water. And we're leveraging a lot of that infrastructure as well. So, you know, all told, there's over $100 billion of investment by companies like Google, Microsoft, NOAA, and various aspects of the European community that we essentially um, are leveraging in building services on top of that technology, science, and observational network. So it's uh, it's quite a fortunate position to be in. And the models that we run are essentially picked by our team of the world's best atmospheric scientists um, in both short-term weather and long-term climate uh, prediction, as well as our um, hydroscience team, which we believe is also one of the world's best teams on the planet. Sorry to be redundant. So one of the best teams on the planet. And we essentially have a end-to-end modeling chain uh, that includes the future state of the climate based on the roughly dozen or so global, global climate models, the um, short-term weather predictions, primarily from the European community medium-range weather forecast and the U.S.'s National Weather Service, um, hydrology engineering models, um, fire prediction engineering models, and risk models, and uh, data APIs and uh, mapping visualization uh, that look a lot like Google Maps. And again, the core technology for internet-based mapping is essentially open source these days. You know, a lot of what we did in the first year was select the core science and technology components and be the first in the world to integrate that together in an interdisciplinary way. And then once that infrastructure has been built, we now are in a position to collaborate with research partners on models that are still actually in development at the university level and, you know, continue to do our own innovation and experimentation on what adds the greatest information, quality, and certainty to the existing service that's now already built. Okay, so I, I want you to think about a hypothetical, and I'm sure as a CEO of a for-profit company, it's not necessarily what you want to do. But some of the clients, you talk about low, medium, high risk. And mm-hmm. let, let's say you're a mature company. You've been around 5, 10, 15 years. And I, I know you're mm-hmm. starting to work in Florida, and I'm from Florida and did a lot of climate work down there. And I can see even with companies or city governments working with you, they're going to make a lot of short to midterm decisions. Even if they're working with you, what if you your company, you, you find 10 years from now that a large percentage of your clients are, are basically making high-risk decisions? They're there. You're there to inform them with this information that you're providing. But I mean, I sense that your company, even though you're for profit, there's a sort of a, a broader public good that you're hoping to accomplish. You're helping society adapt to climate change. What if you just have a huge portfolio of companies that ultimately decide, you know what, we're just going to go with the high risk because it's more profitable in the short term. And I can, a couple of those articles even alluded to that, you know, especially when it comes to real estate. It's like, well, you know what, we can still make a buck over the next 10, 20, 30 years. Would you as a company, what, I'm asking you to sort of speculate, but I mean, if, if you're in that position where you just have all high risk decisions being made with the information you're providing, what would you do? Yeah, I'm going to come at it a little bit differently than the way you framed the question. And then if you still want to ask the question, I'll, I'll try and tackle it. We're actually in the information business and the um, private sector is extraordinarily good at digesting information and making both short and long-term economically rational decisions. I'll give you a good example of this. If your insurance price goes up because something is higher risk, you're either going to move to lower risk assets or invest in the asset to reduce the insurance cost. If your debt costs go up because you have a lower bond rating because you're higher risk, you will do the same thing, either move to lower risk or um, invest in reducing the risk of uh, related to your assets and business. Similarly, if a large sovereign wealth fund with a trillion dollars of investment capital says we're not going to invest in things that are high risk and ignoring climate change risks on a long term basis, the folks that are looking for capital from those sources are going to mod- are going to modify their behavior to appeal to those capital sources and. If that doesn't happen, quite frankly, um, the world is actually facing a much bigger issue than what Jupiter does. So if you go back to 
2001, people were starting to say, you know, these mortgages seem to be a little bit riskier than is priced into the derivative securities that the mortgages um, are that, that are based on these underlying mortgages. And a lot of people said, oh, you know, you're crazy. Everything's fine. Housing always goes up. Right. And then in 2003, people started to say, you know what, maybe these risks actually really are quite significant. And a lot of people, including, unfortunately, the federal government said, no, you know what, things are good. We're going to relax the lending standards. Right. And then by about 2006, there were a handful of entities, financial investors that basically said, you know what, not only are these risks mispriced, but these risks are grossly mispriced. And if we take the other side of the trade, we're ultimately going to make a killing. And by 2007, 2007, <clears throat> brand name investment banks had adopted that view and were, you know, essentially um, getting out of those assets and taking the other side of those trades as fast as they could. So that when 2008 rolled around, you know, there were a handful. You could probably count them on maybe n not one hand, but two hands and two feet that made billions of dollars of profits because they understood that the risk was mispriced and the rest of the world suffered enormous consequences in terms of human well-being and economic prosperity because national governments around the world were so slow to tighten lending standards and deal with what actually was mispriced risk. So one of two things is going to happen on a global basis well before this is a business issue for Jupiter. Either the risk is going to gradually get um, priced into asset values, like all risk is priced into all other assets, or at some point there's going to be a really brutal correction. At some point in time, some set of investors are going to say, we see what's coming and we're going to be on the right side of that. And that in and of itself will drive changes in behavior. And I think the big question for the planet is whether we have a gradual transition to lower risk assets that are appropriately priced, or we have a 2008 like um, global financial correction, um, you know, we'd like to avoid the latter. And, and I guess part of this is what's the definition of long term for an investor? And, and going back to South Florida, I'm always going back to South Florida. You know what the, the models say. You know, three feet of sea level rise is now the conservative number. There's people talking five, six, seven feet by the end of the century. And there are a lot of cranes in Miami building new things. And so investors are obviously comfortable, at least in the short to midterm, to investing down there. I mean, what, how did, how do you guys kind of get around that? I mean, you're, and you're going to be working down there. You are there to provide information for them to make, I guess, short and midterm decisions, but that long-term decision, are they really factoring in what's going to happen? So the short answer is yes, they're beginning to. And uh, let me come back to that in a bit more detail in a moment. I think there's a higher level question on Florida, which is Florida as a, one of the largest economies in the world, right? So if Florida were its own country, it would be certainly in the top 20 of the largest economies in the world, is not going away. And the overall volume of assets and economic activity in Florida is gigantic and could easily support prudent risk management in terms of resilience investments and some shifting of the location of some assets that may ultimately be required. If they wait too long, then it looks a lot like the global financial crisis. On the other hand, you know, Florida's as a vibrant economy uh, wouldn't even exist were it not for the country's largest public works project to date. Uh, that essentially has a system of human-constructed changes in the routes of rivers and uh, pumping stations and, and canals throughout the state that on an, a real-time basis are pushing water uh, out of the state every moment of every day. Well, that exists today. And the cost to maintain the state of Florida relative to the value of the assets and the value of the ongoing economic activity is significant in dollar terms and trivial in percent terms. So a failure to adapt in Florida would be among the greatest 
failures of political will and uh, planning in humanity's history. That's not to say it won't happen, but I wouldn't bet that um, Florida's going away. I think that's just a reductionist view of the world that's quite simplistic. You know, what we see in Florida is the public sector is quite sophisticated on these issues and has a very clear understanding of what they need to do. There might be some voter education and some financing activity that needs to be done well beyond the $400 million bond that was recently issued. But I think the public sector, big, big pieces of the public sector kind of have their finger on the pulse of what's going on. In the private sector, and you mentioned, you know, the cranes all over South Florida, the most sophisticated property developers that we talk to totally get this and increasingly are adopting what I refer to as Sorkin's first rule of antediluvian real estate, which is buy high, sell low. Okay. Yeah, and just, just your notion of like Florida's not going away. I hope not. My parents still live there. Uh, I, I guess just it's more of an acknowledgement that parts of Florida are literally going away just based on what kind of sea level rise we can expect. And so what kind of development decisions do you want to make? And, you know, you guys are going to be part of that conversation. So it, it's going to be a roller coaster over the next 30, 50 years for Florida. And I, and I work for the state of Florida when, you know, new political leadership came in and basically – ban the state from even talking about climate change. And I think that's shifting a little bit. But, you know, the local governments, I think, are really being quite aggressive down there trying to address it. And it's probably some of the people that you're talking to. Sure. Well, a couple of things. Uh, one is a lot of this is going to have to get driven at the federal and state level, just in terms of where the money is. I think Jeb Bush, uh, when he was governor, had one of the best insurance uh, reform programs in the country, if not the world. On the other hand, people do stupid things. They say stupid things and they do stupid things. And generally, investors prefer to put their capital in places where the stewards are sensible and prudent. And, you know, at the moment, that's a challenge in certain states. Well, yeah, no matter what the politics of Florida are, it's just like you said, it's too profitable. No one wants to stay away from it. It's it's people are moving there still. And yeah, it's it's growing. All right. So I want to pivot a little bit here and just I want to get to your perspective. I'm not quite sure how you, long you feel like you individually, and I know your company's quite n new, have, have been part of the adaptation universe. And it, it's, it's actually an emerging field. I think some people think it's been around longer than it really has. What, what is your company doing and what sort of outreach? I know you're, you're out there getting clients, but there's a lot of adaptation professionals. They're sort of starting to organize, and they, they really cover almost all sectors. Are you, are you guys plugging into that universe? Do you feel like adaptation is, is an actual sector that you're engaging with directly, or do you even kind of break it down like that? Well, we're definitely focused on adaptation as a key component of things that we do, and we're building relationships as fast as we can. I think maybe it uh, would be helpful to talk for a moment about the heritage of the, of the people in the company. So, you know, our co-founders include Todd Stern, who's the former chief climate envoy of the United States and has been focused on these issues at the deepest level longer than almost anyone else on the planet. You know, more so from a GHG policy perspective than adaptation, but uh, the adaptation dialogue goes back to uh, COP19. So, you know, five years ago, and Todd was certainly a key part of that. You know, the, the, the company might only be a year old, but the folks in the company have been working on these issues for most of our careers in many, in many cases for various different parts of it. I, I think earlier I may, may have mentioned uh, our work with the architecture, engineering, and construction segment. You know, arguably, they're the ones on the front lines of doing adaptation work. And so since that's a core segment for us, you know, we're already deeply engaged in that. You know, we also are uh, evaluating projects that deal with the impact of saltwater intrusion into freshwater, both natural freshwater as well as um, adaptation projects that are freshwater-based. Obviously, the Everglades is one of the biggest examples of that on the planet. You, you know it very well from your past experience, but there are much smaller instances of that that are already, you know, multi-hundred million dollar projects, environmental mitigation, 
that are now looking at tens of millions of dollars, if not hundreds of millions of dollars of rework because, you know, storm surge intensification and, and sea level rise were not factored into the original design parameters. And now as a result, you have these, these destroyed projects. So I think we're, we're already pretty far along in joining that community as a very deep partner uh, with the, the other folks, but we also you know, we're relatively young as a company and have quite a ways to go too. And, and I would encourage you if you haven't already, you know, there's like an American Society of Adaptation Professionals. There's a National Adaptation Forum. I don't know if you're planning to go that next year. And I, it doesn't sound like you're lacking for customers at the moment, but I, I remember just my days and the people I sort of interact with is that even mid-level people like the adaptation person within a city agency or something, they do the work that you're you're doing here, but part of it is convincing their superiors to to explain what you're doing and to justify it. And yeah, in any way, independent of its business for you, that you can sort of encourage that because a lot of those people struggle because you know a lot of people in leadership positions don't quite get what you're doing and the value of it. And uh, <laughs> I'm sure it's self-serving that you try to convince more of them, but it, it is important that the corporate side of things, you know, is, is helping the those mid. Uh, level people to kind of make those arguments. Sure. Well, I hope what I'm about to say uh, makes it through the uh, editing process. But <laughs> okay. uh, anyone listening to this podcast that wants more information on Jupiter can go to our website, jupiterintel.com. And if you want to contact us directly, our email address is info at jupiterintel.com. And we'd be delighted to talk to anyone who would like to collaborate, uh, partner, or work with us in as a customer. So uh, appreciate the opportunity to spread the word and we'll certainly take a look at any and all conferences where, uh, you know, at the moment we're still under 40 people. So uh, there's only so many different events that we can go to, but uh, we'll try to get to both the ones you recommended. Yeah. Just uh, the national adaptation forum, at least nationally, there's an adaptations features event going on in South Africa and that's sort of the big global one, but the, yeah. the adaptation form, they're growing. It's like, I think it'll be their fourth version and they really, you started off with the natural resource folks, but now they've expanded to the built environment and yeah, having a booth there and just explaining what you do. I, I, I'm not here to push your business specifically. I just think in general, what you're trying to do is a nice, it, it's demonstrating that the field of adaptation is maturing. And so I, sure. I think that's a good thing. Yeah. By the way, Doug, uh, just real quickly, you know, we touch a lot of issues, but we're not trying to do everything, right? So whether it's the architecture, engineering and construction firms or the insurance industry or the public sector or, you know, strategic consulting firms like McKinsey, Bain and BCG that are advising C-suite executives that, you know, their, their clients, we're trying to partner with a lot of those entities and not replicate what those companies do, but rather help them be more effective. You know, as a as a one-year-old company, you know, even when we're five years old, there's only going to be so many of these of these cities, states, countries, uh, companies that we can work with directly and we'll only be able to have the kind of impact we are if we're doing a good job of partnering with our, our compatriots in the uh, in the ecosystem more broadly. All right, so I have a few more questions related more about the business and then just to kind of wrap it up. But I'm curious about competitors, just based on the articles and such, there's not a lot of businesses that are kind of doing what you're doing. You know, I've connected with Coastal Risk Consulting. They've been mentioned in some of the articles that you're doing. And I don't know if you've heard of XDI. I I was just in Australia and it's a company down there. And I I talked to the CEO of it. Have you heard of them? They do something similar. And they were very aware of what you guys were doing. But have you heard of them? Yeah, I mean, uh, we track the competition pretty closely. Two that you mentioned, we're very familiar with their strengths and weaknesses. Um, And I won't comment on either of them specifically, but um, more generally, I think what you have is prior to Jupiter, there's been a bit of a cottage industry that's mostly kind of bespoke consulting as opposed to a reusable technology platform that benefits from tens of millions of dollars of investment in the infrastructure. And so we think those are, you know, all those companies, whether it's the two you mentioned or others, are you know, very, very different kinds of entities than we are. The catastrophic risk modeling firms are kind of the legacy companies 
in the space. You know, it's a bit like Blockbuster and Amazon. They have an old way of doing things that in many respects is uh, obsolete for anything that's predicting the future state of risk more than a couple of years out. But that's, you know, that's those are the incumbents. And, you know, the, the dozens, if not hundreds of little little tiny companies um, that are doing the bespoke modeling, you know, some of them will buy, some of them will partner with, um, others will compete with directly. All right. And so one of the conversations I had down in Australia was the, the ability to actually provide this kind of service at the specific homeowner level. Is that somewhere you, you think you're going to go? Like it would be an, like someone who has a house wants to, you know, I think you have an app. It, is that a market? Is that a realistic market? Well, certainly it's possible to predict the risk at the homeowner level. I think there's a big business model question of whether homeowners or you know, the ecosystem around individual residential properties like um, escrow and insur- and mortgage insurance um, and real estate brokers are a better market than, you know, the kinds of things that Microsoft and Google do and even Facebook with advertising supported business models. I think you're much more likely to see over time a free service from someone like Microsoft and Google that's advertising supported and uh, direct to consumer business model in the short run because Google and Microsoft and, you know, other, and Facebook are not currently in that business. Um, you know, there might be a short term opportunity for folks that are doing direct to consumer, but ultimately, you know, we don't think that's a terribly attractive business model. Well, and since there's really not that many people in the space that you're, you're working and you mentioned stockbrokers. And in some ways, the stock market is regulated by the government. And I've done a quite a bit of scenario planning. You know, I work for the National Park Service, and sure. it's not quite the same thing. But it seems like everyone has their own scenario planning model, and they come in and they plug in some of the numbers and they do their. But it's almost like the wild wild west. You know, you could go to all these different workshops, and everyone's got their own sort of way of doing it. And there's going to be more companies like yours popping up. And some of them might just be producing junk. Is there a role for the government at some point to kind of regulate this information that's going to be used to make a lot of very important decisions? Well, first of all, I do agree it's a bit like the Wild West and the Wild West matured. We think this is going to mature quite rapidly. You know, the market does have very efficient mechanisms for sorting out junk and quality. You know, we're we're certainly focused on the highest quality service available and technically possible and we'll be playing a role in educating the market on the difference in quality between what we do and you know to the extent there are players that are truly junk um helping the market to understand that and we think folks like you and the new york times and the washington post and will also play a role as well the insurance industry so i'm not really sure that there's a role for the government especially in the next two years at the national government level in the United States. I think there's real reservations about whether, uh, about what segments of the market would find the U.S. government a credible arbiter of quality today. You know, we'd like to see the market develop with its own uh, mechanisms for evaluating quality. And I guess time will tell whether that's going to happen or not. And we probably have at least a two, if not six year window in the United States to demonstrate that we're a quality, we're a reputable quality provider before the federal government's likely to step in on this. Well, you know, that's related to a question that I just was going to have. Will people adopt this technology in time for it to matter? And so you're basically saying that there is a time frame where bigger authorities are going to step in. Well, I don't think that's inevitable. I think there's a time frame in which national governments will decide if they need to step in or not. And, you know, different societies around the planet have different views of the role of their national governments in these kinds of issues. And even on a year-to-year basis, some of those views generically, regardless of this particular issue, tend to evolve. So I think the challenge is on us to do a good enough job that that kind of regulation is not necessary. And we think we're, we're up to that task. But I think there's a bigger question of, you know, at what point in time does it become too late for our customers to adapt? And that's going to vary depending on where on the planet they are and where and what their businesses are. 
some are more vulnerable, both from a geographic perspective and from a business model perspective than others. And, you know, again, in the intermediate range, and, you know, now we're talking like three to 10 years, investors are smart. And I think a lot of this is going to get sorted out uh, through access to capital and price of capital well before national governments put in place effective programs. We're now, depending on your on your starting point, somewhere between 10 and 50 years into the debate around greenhouse gases and, you know, the amount of progress that's been made on that at the national government level is um, extraordinarily disturbing in terms of how woefully short it it is versus where it needs to be. So, you know, they have, they still have to tackle that one. Okay, so this is my last question, and I ask this of all my guests. If you could recommend any person, and if you have connections to get them on the podcast, who, who would you recommend? Let me turn that back to a question for you. What's <laughs> okay. The biggest, what's the biggest issue that the audience for your podcast cares about? Oh, it's it's diverse. It's these are people that are working in adaptation or interested. You know, it's adaptation professionals, and so it covers every sector. And so I, they partly like the randomness of the guests that I bring on. So they kind of bring it on me to be their quirky guests or whatever. And so if you have some unusual person, that that's even better. That that kind of brings a new kind of flavor to it. Well, I have an obvious one, which is Michael Bloomberg, who probably knows more about these issues as a result of, uh, you know, his time as governor of New York during Hurricane Sandy and the post-Sandy planning, uh, as well as his role as chairman of the task force um, for climate-related adaptations. So he'd be the, he'd be the giant get. Um, and uh, uh, I'm sure would have a lot of very interesting and unfiltered things to say. In terms of quirky, uh, you know, someone like John Drizik at Marsh that, you know, essentially helps their clients evaluate risk and uh, how to manage that risk would be a great choice. You know, maybe um, the CEO of one of the big architecture, engineering and construction firms like AECOM or Arab or Arcadis uh, would be good. Uh, I think uh, Governor Bush, based on his time in Florida and the role that he played in insurance reform, would be a fabulous uh, source of insight as well. Uh, and then, you know, one of our co-founders, uh, Todd Stern, who's been part of the National Climate Dialogue for, you know, decades, uh, would be a great a great uh, guest as well. All great names. And if you had any in with Bloomberg, that'd be great. I'd love to get him on. I mean, I've had some pretty big names on, but Bloomberg, I'm sure he's got probably a wall to get through. Um, I don't suppose you have any links to Schwarzenegger, who's in your neck of the woods. He's just been amazing on it. You know, he's just really ramped it up in the last couple of years. Yeah, um, I would say, I think former Governor Schwarzenegger is a certainly a good choice. You might be equally or better well served with current governors. So... Governor Brown's been a leader on this issue. We're actively engaged in the California Climate Summit in September. Uh, Governor Cuomo is uh, really focused on this issue as well. And even um, the new governor in New Jersey, Governor Murphy, I think has excellent perspective on this. And we're happy to make introductions to uh, the staff of any one of those three governors, uh, as well as folks very close to um former Mayor Bloomberg as well. And, you know, one of our full-time employees, one of our advisors were both in the Bloomberg administration. So um, we, we, I think, can can help you there. Governor Schwarzenegger might, former Governor Schwarzenegger might take a little bit of, um, of digging on my part. And we also can help you um, with an introduction to former Governor Bush. Well, that'd be fabulous. Excellent. Thank you so much. This has been very enlightening for me. Uh, is I really haven't had a lot of private sector folks on the podcast because I obviously don't want it to be an infomercial, and I don't think we did that. I think what you're doing is very exciting, but at the same time, there are a lot of questions, and I think you, you walked us through a lot of that. So, so I appreciate you coming on. Well, it's really been a pleasure to be here, Doug. You've been a pioneer in this area for uh, a long time, and uh, it was a delight chatting with you, and hopefully we can... Uh, view this as the beginning of uh, an, uh, an ongoing dialogue. Awesome. Excellent. 
Okay, I hope you enjoyed my talk with Rich. Please stick around and get inspired by Claire Wayner and the Zero Hour Climate March. Hey, adapters. I have a very special guest on today, Claire Wayner. Hey, Claire. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Doug. Thank you for having me on. Okay, Claire, you are somewhat of an unusual guest. I've had a couple teenagers on in the past, but could you give us a little bit of background on yourself? Yeah, I am a 17-year-old high school senior, so in 12th grade, from Baltimore, Maryland. And this summer, I am doing some organizing work with the Zero Hour Youth Climate March happening on Saturday, July 21st in D.C. Okay, before we jump into that. Sorry. No, that's not. I I will prompt you. That's fine. Okay. Okay. I'm probably going to keep all this in, too, because it's fun. I want to start off, though. Is there anything very special about today? About today? Yeah. Oh, um, oh, yeah. I mean, today is my high school prom. Yeah. Right. I think that's Tonight. fantastic. Right. It's been so long. I'm ancient. But when you told me that we we're going to record on the day you were having a prom, I'm like, we could do this some other time. But you, you insisted. So I, I appreciate you making the time. But I guess it really doesn't take that much time to prep for prom. So, yeah, I mean, I'm not I'm not the sort of person who would prep a lot. And it's also <laughs> not the morning after prom, um, oh, which good is probably point. when I would be sleeping in. Right. Touché. Um, but this morning I'm fine. So. Uh, all right. Very exciting. Okay. So a little bit of history here. You are a listener to America Daps and you're, you've reached out to me to talk about this zero hour. Tell me a little bit about that history. I started listening to America Adapts about a year ago when I first got my license. I started driving and realized how boring it was, just how mind numbing it would be to just sit in the car and not listen to anything. But I also found that the radio wasn't talking about the issues that I found most pertinent in my life, which was you know climate change, adaptation um, and environmental justice issues. So I searched around on Apple podcasts and there really weren't that many podcasts dealing with climate change except for yours. Uh, and so I was thrilled when I found America Adapts and uh, since then, I've been an avid listener and I love connecting, especially to the adaptation that you cover, because before listening to America Adapts, I really didn't know how adaptation fit into the whole climate change spectrum. So I've learned a lot from you. and Thank you. Well, no, thank you. And this is completely self-serving, but I just love hearing that <laughs> a teenager was bored and started listening to America Adapts. That's just, that's golden for me. So, so I certainly do appreciate it. And I, and I am very, I guess, happy to hear that you learned something about adaptation because, you know, I, I think what the point with the podcast is that there could appeals to a wide range of listeners. But I think the most important thing about you reaching out is what you're doing with Zero Hour. I wanted you to come on. I like to encourage folks out there to get involved with a bit of activism and the fact that a 17-year-old is taking such a leadership role in this. Give us some more detail. And I and I know an event's coming up, and here's your chance to plug it. Yeah. Zero Hour was founded by a 16-year-old from Seattle, Jamie Margolin. And the whole idea behind Zero Hour is that we can't just keep talking about climate change in a bubble. We need to start connecting it to the tangible effects that it is going to have on regular everyday people, especially youth, uh, because we are the next generation and we will be around for the longest dealing with the effects. With all that in mind, Zero Hour is launching with its first major event, which is a youth led climate march in Washington, D.C., with sister marches around the world on Saturday, July 21st. It's, it's kind of a good time for us students because we're out of school. We're looking for something to do over the summer. And we're going to pair that march with a youth lobby day on Capitol Hill on July 19th and a youth art build day on July 20th. So the two days beforehand. And we want to come away from this march really just increasing the awareness about climate justice. You looking at previous youth-led marches, especially March for Our Lives, right, and the success that they have had with just increasing the conversation. And we feel that as long as we are increasing this conversation about climate justice, as well as advocating for policy, we can really start to see changes occur on a national scale. Well, that's so fantastic. I'm so impressed that someone at your age is getting so involved because these things aren't easy to do. And so the average listener, they're going to hear this. And, you know, podcasts have a long shelf life. If, if 
they're done the right way. And so that date for the March is actually going to come and go. Hopefully people are going to listen to this and they're going to take advantage and maybe they encourage their teenage children to get involved. But what are some of the other things? Let's say someone's listening to this podcast in September or October. What other things could, would you encourage them to do? Are there resources that they could go to to continue what you're trying to do here with Zero Hour? I think that Zero Hour is really going to try to build up the website and the social media sites that they have. Uh, so the website link is thisiszerohour.org. And I think that we're going to try to build up these platforms to have resources for youth. Uh, to bring back to their local communities. So even after the march, I would say that youth or adults or, you know, anyone look at your local community, uh, your local lawmaking body, whether that's a county council, you know, city council or even your state legislature and start thinking about policies that you could help to pass that are really going to push forward climate change mitigation and adaptation. So look at the renewable portfolio standards for your state, right? A, a lot of these might sound unfamiliar now, but oftentimes you can start by meeting with a local legislator and talking through what you want to do. And the legislator can help you frame that in terms of bills and laws and legislation. But I guess through Zero Hour, I've learned that one of the most direct ways that youth can get involved is not just advocacy and marching, but turning that into powerful legislation that is going to make a difference in the amount of fossil fuels that we burn and in how communities are going to be best adapted to climate change. All right. So this is about creating a movement. So uh, I Yeah, get yeah. Yeah. Creating a movement. And I think Zero Hour just hopes to connect all of these young activists around the country, continuing to use our social media and our website for ways to youth to kind of build off of each other, build up that energy, and then take that back to their communities to mobilize. Okay, I got a couple more questions and just more about you. So wh why is climate change such an important issue to you? I mean, you alluded to it a little bit earlier, but I mean, you've obviously jumped right into this. Yeah, I would say what really got me interested in climate change was were birds. I, I've loved watching birds ever since I was pretty little. And as I got older, I started to learn about the threat that climate change posed to birds in my local environment. A lot of birds migrate and climate change is going to affect how birds migrate. And so to me, my story with climate change has been connecting how I relate with birds to members of my community through bird walks, through bird festivals, bird monitoring, um, and using birds as kind of messengers, right? Canaries in the coal mine to show us that climate change is affecting humans, it's affecting our natural environment, and that birds were what got me into the climate change and climate justice rhetoric. And once I got into that, I started trying to make the connection between birds and people and how climate change would affect all of us in diverse, but almost unified ways. Awesome. That is an unusual and a profound reason to get involved with, with this issue. I, I'm very impressed. And so I guess one last question is, what do your parents think about your activism? This is fantastic. I'm so impressed. Maybe you're a typical teen in other areas of your life, but in this area, they, it's your, you act, you know, more activist than most adults. And so what do they think? Gosh, I think, I think they just hope that I don't get arrested in doing something <laughs> A little crazy, like a little crazy with youth marching and so forth. But I think that they also recognize that their generation kind of missed its opportunity to do something about climate change, to start recognizing it, because we've known about climate change for many decades and then it just started to build momentum. And so I wouldn't say that they're grateful, but I would say that they're recognizing that my generation is taking on this huge global problem that their generation kind of glossed over or didn't really know about yet. And so it's kind of like, I don't know, like they're passing on the torch or, or just encouraging me because it's something that they didn't do that in retrospect, they wish that they would have worked on. Oh, wow. I love this. Throwing some shade at your parents' generation. Awesome. I'm trying not to be rude. <laughs> I know. No, you are absolutely spot on. And this, that's part of my generation, my age. There, there is a lot of work being done at our age level, but we've dropped the ball in so many other areas. And so I've, 
you're spot on and, and hopefully that's, you know, your generation is going to take it that much more seriously. So, that, so that's very encouraging. Okay. So any last bit of information you want to share? Maybe just uh, mention the date again and any sort of website or resources people could go to. I'll include stuff in my show notes if people want to dig there, but any sort of final thoughts and information? So I would encourage everyone to show up to the zero hour youth march on Saturday, July 21st, 2018. Uh, you can either attend the big central march in DC or you can uh, go to our website, which is this is zero hour.org and search for a sister march near you or even start a sister march near you. It doesn't have to be a big effort. It can just be you and a couple other activists getting together, posting on social media and joining the movement. And you can RSVP for the march on our website. This is zero hour.org. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and I hope to see you mobilizing with us on July 21st. Uh, thanks, Claire. That was fantastic. And again, uh, those resources will be in the show notes. You and I have chatted about you guys even starting your own podcast that I would be more than happy to help you do. So that's one way to kind of keep up this movement. So let's keep communicating that way. But again, thanks for what you do, and uh, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks so much. And I will stay in touch about the podcast idea. I've heard of another group that might be doing it, so I want to try to partner with them, but but we'll see. I really want to make it work. So thank you. Okay, adapters, that is a wrap. Thanks to Richard Sorkin for coming on the podcast. I think it's an exciting development that Silicon Valley is setting their gaze on climate adaptation. Will there be a Google or Amazon that emerges from the adaptation landscape that profits from the field? That remains to be seen. Also, thanks to Claire. Good luck with Zero Hour and keep up the great work that you are doing. I'm still tickled that of her quote, she was bored and she found America adapt. She's a teenager. I love that. My generation is counting on your generation to take it up a notch. Some final housekeeping. Don't forget to join the Facebook page and the Facebook community group. The group is private, but search for America adapts and ask to join. And I will approve you right away. It's a chance to hear some insider info on the podcast and see what other listeners are sharing on the Facebook wall. There have been some great conversations in that group. Okay, I love hearing from you. Please write me. Every week, it's some random person, and it's the highlight of my week. I love hearing from you. You're, I hear from people from all over the world. If you have something to say, an idea for a guest, or if you're doing something really cool, just email me. I'm at americadaps at gmail.com. Okay, check out the website at americadaps.org. And all this information is in the show notes, especially that link to the donate page. Okay, adapters, keep up the great work. I'll see you next time.